Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Healthier Together podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're learning science hacks to be more charismatic, tackling burnout to get our energy back, or talking super honestly about the pros and cons of having kids. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. Today's episode is all about overcoming imposter syndrome. My guest today is Dr. Valerie Young, one of the world's leading experts on imposter syndrome and the founder of the Imposter Syndrome Institute. She's the author of the best-selling book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from Imposter Syndrome, which was actually recommended to me by a member of this community. I read the book, fell in love with Dr. Young's approach, and reached out to have her on the pod, so thank you so much. I love when you give recommendations. I am always listening to you guys and trying to make this podcast serve you as much as possible. If you are wondering if you have imposter syndrome, don't worry, we covered that at the very beginning of the episode. But whether or not you have it, and to be clear, the stats show that at least 70% of us have it, and I actually think that it's far higher than that, so it's not something to feel alone or ashamed of at all. But whether or not you have it, there are a ton of interesting reframes and strategies here that will generally help you get out of your own way and start living the life of your dreams. We talk about the hidden causes of imposter syndrome, the types of people who are more vulnerable to imposter syndrome, exactly how to get over the fear of people thinking you're stupid or not liking you, how to deal with criticism in a healthy way, the real thing that holds us back from going after our dreams more than money or time, how to get over fear of failure and actually take a big, scary leap in your life, why perfectionism is not serving you, and pragmatic tips to let go of it. I needed this one, as you will hear in the episode. Why your imposter syndrome might be leading to procrastination and how to stop. One simple thing everyone can do to build confidence right now, and the one big mistake people make when trying to decide if a risk is worth taking. I am so excited about this episode, and I can't wait to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so please screenshot and tag me. I am at Liz Moody. Okay, let's tackle imposter syndrome so we can start living our best lives. I would love to start out with just a basic definition of what is imposter syndrome. Like, how are you defining that? I define it, Liz, as this often unconscious belief that deep down we're not as intelligent, capable, competent, qualified, talented as other people think we are. And we have this belief because we have externalized our success, right? So It's counterintuitive because we can see the degree on the wall, we can see concrete evidence of our abilities, and yet we chalk them up to outside factors, things like luck, timing, computer error, you know, they just like me, connections, and we're left with this fear of being found out. What are some signs in our life that might signify we're suffering from imposter syndrome? I I thought it was really interesting that some of these were like different than just like walking around all day and be like, I'm an imposter, I'm an imposter. Yeah, we're, we're rarely walking around saying I'm an imposter. You know, usually someone, for example, they might say, I love your podcast, or, you know, I enjoyed your book, or good job on that project. And you either overtly push it away and say, mm. you know, oh, it's just because somebody helped me, or, you know, I, I really lucked out, it was a fluke, right time at the right place, you know, or you're just internally, you're having a hard time really owning your accomplishments. You know, you're constantly chalking them up to these outside factors. And I think if you have this, persistent anxiety that if they only knew, 
right? That, that they're going to find out, then that's a pretty good sign that you're probably experiencing imposter syndrome as opposed to just kind of what I call normal self-doubt. It's interesting too, the example that you gave about the podcast, because for me, my podcast is this place that I feel like I'm good at it. I feel like I trained as a journalist for years and years and years. And so when people compliment me about my podcast, I internalize it in such a different way than when people compliment me on my recipes. I feel like when people compliment me on my recipes, I'm just kind of like, oh, like, thank you. And I've written cookbooks and stuff, but there's something about it that I feel so imposter syndrome in this one category of my life. And I feel very confident and comfortable in another category of my life. Is that normal? Absolutely. You know, I mean, we often kind of have this image that people who feel like imposters are just walking around, right? Feeling it in every aspect of their life. And in reality, just as you said, there's areas where you can feel very, very confident and other places, especially a new situation, something that you haven't done before, or you don't feel is your strength, or maybe you're in a situation where you're very visible, you know, Mm. or there's not a lot of people who look like you're, you the only woman in the room, you're the person of color in the room. You know, those are the moments where these feelings can also come up. You're alluding to the fact that some of these things are like external perceptions. Can you speak a little bit to all of the different places that imposter syndrome can come from, like our childhood and these very real systems that we all have to live within? I mean, as it turns out, Liz, if you were raised by humans, you have a much better chance of experiencing imposter feelings. And even incredibly well-intentioned parents can pass along some messaging that might lead a child to go up and feel like an imposter. So let me give you three very quick examples. So maybe you were the kid who came home with four A's and one B, and your family's only response was, what's that B doing there? Mm. What you learned is the only thing that's acceptable is perfection. And for kids, praise is like oxygen. Now, there's many reasons why a parent might be expecting all A's and academic excellence. Maybe in an immigrant family, education is seen as the path to success or maybe even survival for the family. Very often in Black families, parents send the message, rightly so, that you have to be better, right? You have to excel because you have to be better because you're being judged by a different higher bar. You know, obviously in affluent or well-educated families, they want you to fall in their footsteps and so on. But none of those reasons matter when you're a kid because, again, praise is like oxygen. Other kids might have gotten excellent grades and gotten no praise at all. And there's many reasons. It's not because they're bad parents. Maybe they didn't get it growing up, so they don't know how to give it. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's just expected. There's many reasons. But when you're a kid, you don't care because praise is like oxygen. And then other kids got a little too much oxygen. Mm. right? Where they were told everything they did was remarkable. And then they become very dependent on praise uh, as an adult and have a hard time sorting out good from great from average. I think that's the category that I fall into completely. Like I was always in like the gifted and talented programs. And I was really taught that my worth came from accomplishing things from a very young age. Yeah. And then suddenly you slam into something hard and you may not know what to do with it. I mean, certainly a lot of kids who are at the top of their class go off to college and now they are one of many. Now they're competing with kids who are also gifted, also at the top of their class. And it can be, you know, a real jolt to their to their identity. And suddenly they feel a lot less, quote unquote, smart. But I'm not a big fan of it's not one thing, it's your mother. You know, that we, we didn't go up in a vacuum. There's more going on than family messages. I mean, that's worth looking at, right? How was success defined in my family? Have I exceeded that definition? Have I fallen short? Either one will send you into therapy, right? Just saying. It's important to look at how success was treated when you were a child, failure, and so on. But again, we didn't go up in a vacuum. 
people who work alone are more susceptible. People who are solo practitioners, solopreneurs, people working you know, home with COVID because of uh, COVID restrictions. Why is that? Why would working alone make you more susceptible? Well, when you're working alone, especially if you have your own business, you're not getting feedback from anyone. You know, it, you're not oh. getting performance evaluations. It's much easier to get into your head. I think with so many people working virtually now, it's a lot harder to read signals when you're dealing in a virtual meeting. A lot of people started their jobs during COVID. They have never met their coworkers. And it's very easy, as I said, to kind of get in your head and not really be sure on how well you're performing mm. when you're when you're working alone. People, students as a segment of population, college students, especially graduate students, much more likely than the general public to experience imposter syndrome, which, which makes sense because their knowledge and intellect is literally being tested over and over again. People in certain occupations are way more susceptible. People in creative fields, design, acting, writing, art. There was uh, a study, I think it was in Australia, in the ad agency world. And usually people talk about how 70% of people feel like imposters. In this study, it was something like 97%, you know, which made me think like, what's up with the other three? <laughs> like, What's going on with them? But when you're in a creative field, you're being judged by subjective standards, by people whose job title is professional critic. Mm. And that's why you see people like Tina Fey, Tom Hanks, Viola Davis. I mean, so many accomplished, my Angelo, writers, actors, and, and so on have talked about, you know, they're feeling like imposters. People in very information-dense, rapidly changing fields like science, technology, medicine are more vulnerable. People in very highly competitive environments like big law firms. And then you can't disregard you know, the confidence gap, which is very well researched between people who identify as men and people who identify as women. And then more broadly speaking, you know, a sense of belonging fosters confidence. So, you know, the more people in the room who look like you or in your field, you know, or at a level in an organization, the more confident you feel. The more people who sound like you, the more confident you feel. Mm. But if you have a strong regional or working class accent that society has decided doesn't sound as intelligent. Or if English is not your first language and that's the, what you're doing business in or, or going to school uh, speaking English, you can be more susceptible. Folks who are first generation in their family to go to college are also more vulnerable to imposter feelings. It's so interesting because we're going to talk about a lot of the mindset shifts and the things that you can do internally. But a lot of the things that you mentioned are external factors. There's a quote that you gave in the book that was something like, if you're selling yourself short, it may be because the world that you live in does too, which just stopped me in my tracks. And I'm curious how you would suggest that we deal with that. For people identifying as women in the workplace, there are very real challenges that they face versus people who identify as men. And there's very real challenges that BIPOC face. And so what do we do with these systemic issues? Is, is it just to kind of change our own mindset? Do we have to change the system to feel better? Clearly, the system is part of the problem. On the off chance that us as individuals can't change the whole system, I want people to understand how organizational culture can fuel self-doubt. I want people to understand the pressure that people of color, that women, folks with disabilities, you know, whenever you're on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence, intelligence, you're going to be more susceptible to imposter syndrome. So I think it's really important to understand the external factors that can undermine our confidence. At the same time, none of us have any control over what anyone in the room thinks of us. 
Mm. None. We have no control at all. So the point that I always make to people is the only thing we have control over is our response. Let's say you're sitting in a room and somebody's speaking and you don't understand, but you don't want to speak up because you don't want to sound stupid. Right? We've all been there. We've all hesitated to raise our hand. And then someone asks our question and the person says, oh, that's a brilliant question. Like, oh, yeah, that was my question. The message I always give people is it's not about knowing it all. It's about not knowing with confidence. I want them to be the person in the room who raises their hand and confidently says, excuse me, I'm not following. Do you mean this or do you mean that? Can you explain that a different way? I'm not, you know, I don't get it. Now, will you feel more vulnerable if you are the woman in the room? You're the person of color, you know, you're the person with a disability or so on. Absolutely. But again, we have no control. So that's why I want this notion that I have just as much right to not understand mm-hmm. or ask for help as anyone else. I want it to come from the depths of our soul. So that so we project that not knowing with, with the confidence that says, of course, I'm asking this is a perfectly legitimate question to ask. And nine times out of 10, people in the room are like, oh, thank God, Liz was brave enough to ask that question. I had no idea what was going on either. I always really respect people who are like, oh, I didn't know what that word meant. Can you explain it further? Or who do have that quality. But in the moment, I find it really hard to get myself there. I'm like, oh, people will judge you in this way, whatever, whatever. Do you have any pragmatic tips for getting to that place of not knowing with confidence? You know, I think it's about being kinder to ourselves and having more of a, of a sense of humor. We take everything so seriously. I was speaking to a couple of hundred healthcare executives in Orlando, and I started coughing, you know, like that kind of tickle that you can't get rid of. I had to step aside and, and drink water for a couple of minutes, you know, and then I came back and and I said, how many of you would be mortified right now if this happened to you? And, and a bunch of people raised their hand. And I said, yeah, I don't care. I pointed out, it's not that I don't care. It's just that I have it in perspective. Like no mm. one stormed out of that room and said, I am not listening to that coughing speaker one more second. We all have coughed in that way. I think we have to respond as if proportional to, the, to whatever's happening. It's not a big deal. But if we project that it is, it's more problematic. So to be able to, you know, let things roll off us more quickly, it's a skill we have to practice, but I think it's really well worth practicing. So is that just in the moment, almost having the dialogue of, if I did raise my hand and ask this question, what's the worst thing that could happen? If people did think I was, is it, is it a, what's the worst that could happen? Is it trying to put yourself in other people's shoes? Like what's actually happening in those moments? We have these rules, right? If I was really intelligent, capable, competent, I should, I'd never, I'd always. So the rule there is probably I'd always understand what people are saying, or I'd always know the answer. So I often ask people, well, what if you broke the rule? What would happen? You know, if I ask the question, then what? Like, what's the fear? And the fear is typically that other people will think I'm stupid. But if you dig down a little deeper, the real fear is I think I'm stupid oh. and I don't want people to find out. Oh. And for women, you know, I used to do this exercise, if then, like if you break this rule, if this, then what? For women, it came down to one or two things. They'll think I'm quote unquote stupid, not qualified, an imposter, or they won't like me. And you hear that a lot more from women, the fear of not being liked than you do from men. So how do we stop caring about those two fears? How can we create distance from them? I think it's really hard to stop caring if people like you, you know, unless you're narcissistic, you know, and you have to try to be, and still put that in perspective because you don't love everybody. Not everybody's going to love you. I mean, that's just the, the reality. 
That's so funny because it's so simple when you say it that way. You don't love everybody. So why would everybody love you? But still the idea, like I can have a hundred thousand people like content I put out there. And if one person sends me a message that I, I sit with that forever, I'm just like, I need to get this one person to like me. Yeah. It's such a uneven oh, assumption absolutely. or desire. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. We love talking about our gut health here on the Healthier Together podcast, which is why I'm so excited to share the life-changing Seed Daily Symbiotic. I actually discovered Seed back when I was working as an editor full-time. A bottle came across my desk and I was instantly taken by how cute the green glass packaging is. Then I found out that that packaging was actually refillable so that Seed could share its products as sustainably as possible. And then I actually looked into the research behind Seed and, well, I was blown away. First of all, Seed is not just a probiotic. It is a symbiotic. That means it contains both pre and probiotics, which is super important. In fact, if you remember my Ask the Doctor Gut Health Edition, we talked about how prebiotics are one of the most important and often underlooked components of great gut health. Let me break it down for you. Probiotics are the live bacteria that are so beneficial to our gut health but prebiotics are the food that those probiotics need to thrive. If you don't have ample prebiotics, the probiotics you're consuming will be undernourished and not be able to help your health in the way that you want. Speaking of your health, there's also a common misconception that probiotics or symbiotics are for people with gut issues, which is so not true. Like, yes, the seed symbiotic is amazing for your gut health, but your gut health impacts everything in your entire body, your skin, your mental health, your cardiovascular health, your ability to actually assimilate the maximum amount of nutrients from all that healthy food you're eating, having a happy gut is critical for all of it. It is hard to narrow down everything else that I love about Seed. I am extremely particular with my supplements and I don't take many, but Seed is just stellar across the board. It's been tested and tested and tested. Seriously, their testing process is bananas to make sure that it has 100% survival through the digestive process, which is so rare. And somehow they do all of that without needing refrigeration, which is very handy. I find that when I have refrigerated probiotics, I just forget about them and they get buried behind old jars of pasta sauce, whereas I keep these on my bedside table, so I'm reminded to take them every single night. They also contain the 24 strains that are the most scientifically studied to support your whole body's health. I am obviously passionate about this stuff. Taking care of my gut has been a key part of my own anxiety journey, and Seed has been a vital part of that. So feel free to reach out with any questions. And if you like learning about gut health and how probiotics and prebiotics actually function, I highly recommend heading over to seed.com. They have a whole educational section that breaks down the science behind your microbiome in some of the easiest to understand ways that I have ever seen. And if you'd like to try Seed for yourself and pretty much change your life forever, you can get 15% off your first month's supply of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic by going to seed.com slash daily dash symbiotic and using the code Liz Moody. Again, that's code Liz Moody on seed.com slash daily dash S-Y-N-B-I-O-T-I-C. Now let's get back to the episode. I think imposter syndrome, we have this trick scale, right? And on our trick scale, only the negative evidence counts. So to mm. your point, you know, you give a talk and there's a hundred people in the room and 99 people say it was great. One person says that was the worst talk I ever went to. Horrible. And you believe the one person because we think everyone else was just being nice. Yeah. Just being nice. Yeah, for sure. So how do we deal with that? Is that where like the whole fake it till you make it concept comes in? I think it goes back to just perspective setting. 
you know, and again, you're, you, you don't like every book. You don't like every film. We don't like everything. So why is everybody going to like us? And it's about making a conscious decision. I'm going to focus on the 99 people for whom I am their cup of tea. They do enjoy my podcast or my book or whatever it is. Those other people will be well served to go somewhere else, which is a better fit for them. Sometimes we're getting good information and we're getting good. We think of it as criticism, but we're getting good information. And even constructive criticism, Liz, when you feel like an imposter, it wounds us, Mm. right? All we hear is the constructive criticism. I was speaking at NASA and this woman said to me, this engineer, she had her performance review. Her boss told her four or five things where she was outstanding. And at the end, she said, is there anything else, anything I can work on or get better? And she said, and then he told me, she said, he criticized me and I was depressed for weeks. I said, do you mind if I asked you what the criticism was? And she said, yes, he told me I could have delegated more on my last project. And I said, that wasn't criticism. That was information. He sees you operating at a higher level. He was giving you information you need Mm. to get better. And I think we have to start looking at constructive feedback, almost like in a sports kind of way. Because would you really want a tennis coach who says, well, Liz is holding her racket wrong, but... I don't want to say anything because I don't want to hurt her feelings. Or do you want somebody who's going to give you the information to get better? Is there anything that you told her about knowing when something is criticism and when something is that information that you need to get better and how to interpret it correctly? We just had that one conversation about that information that she got. And not let me be clear, not all criticism is valid. There's certainly many famous entertainers and actors who've gotten horrible critiques or books, right, that were rejected. And, you know, you'll never be an actor, you'll never be a comedian or what. And they're like outstanding in their field. So you can't believe all the quote unquote critics. But I think we need to pay attention. And I think part of us knows when we're getting information that might help Mm. us. I mean, maybe. Let me tell you a quick story. There was a woman who, she was an executive coach, and she wrote this article in a big newspaper about how she had ironically just come back from speaking on imposter syndrome, where she talks about constructive feedback is a gift. But then somebody emailed her and said, I just want you to know, enjoyed your talk, but you said, um, like a hundred times in a one hour talk. And so this woman was angry. She was hurt. She was upset. Her daughter was furious. How rude. And then she kind of got a hold of herself and she said, and then I had a different response. And I thought she was going to say gratitude, but it wasn't. It was empathy. She felt sorry for this young woman because she didn't know that the best feedback is asked for, you know, and so on. And I thought, wow, you should send that woman roses. She not only told you, you said, um, but she quantified it like a hundred times. If you want to be a speaker, that was really good information. And she took time out of her day to give you information to help you get better. And anybody who's in business, you need to take information seriously and, you know, and obviously assess whether it's useful. But in that case, that was incredibly useful to me. That was not criticism. That was really good information. It might hurt. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt, but it was good information. I feel like for me, 
I have the emotional response immediately, and then I can have that logical assessment of, is this helpful? Is this useful in a way? Or should I disregard this feedback after I get through that initial moment of emotional response? Is that bad? Or like, should I be trying no. to get rid of that initial emotional no, response? No, no, no. I think we're human. We're going to okay. have that initial response. And then we just, it. to me, it's always about kind of talking yourself down faster. Do you have like a self-dialogue for that? Because I'm really bad at it. You know, it's funny. I've never... I never use the words like inner critic or, you know, that's not part of my, how I view the world. I think it's about stepping, hitting the pause button, becoming consciously aware of what is the conversation going on in your head and then reframing it the way somebody who is humble, genuinely humble, but has never felt like an imposter would. How would they, for example, take that feedback seriously, but not personally? Okay. I can try that. We kind of started talking about the fear of not being likable, but then there's also the fear of not being smart in those moments that you like are afraid to raise your hand at work or suggest an idea in a meeting. Would that be the same process in that type of situation as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was speaking to a group of PhD students. They were Black and Latino PhD students in engineering. One of the students there, he was Black and he had, I'm not sure what the disability was, but he was I think he had cerebral palsy. He was difficult to understand. His speech was difficult to understand. His name was Jerry. He was the first person to raise his hand. He, he was just intensely curious. If I asked a question to the audience, he would raise his hand and volunteer. He didn't care what anyone thought about him. He was there to learn. I love that. I love that. I do think there is almost like a zooming out of we have this one life. What are we trying to actually accomplish here? And how much is our fears of what other people think of us impeding that accomplishment. Oh, absolutely. I think confidence holds people back far more than you know money or time. I know people who've had money and had time and they still couldn't get out of their own way, let's say to start a business or something. Mm. Uh, but confidence, I think, holds us back more than anything else. And this fear of, can I do it? What will people think? Will I fail? Am I smart enough? Do I know enough? Let's talk about that for a second because there's the idea of imposter syndrome once you're actually in a role, but I think it's also really interesting how much it can prevent you from even starting something. Do you have any advice for when you're like, should I start a business? Am I qualified to go for this job? Should I start a novel or something like that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you've written cookbooks and very often people get stuck because they're trying to come up with this idea that no one else has ever thought of before. And if they, if somebody got there first, they're crushed. Like they took like the one idea that was going to change the world. And I, I use this example. I said, imagine you said, you know, I'm going to take my family recipes and I'm going to collect them and put them in a book and bind it and sell it. And then one day you walk into Barnes and Noble and you come around the corner and you run into the cookbook section <laughs> and you go, oh no, somebody already wrote a cookbook, mm. <laughs> but they didn't write your cookbook, right? They didn't start your business. Mm. I know a lot of multi-millionaire online business owners from my previous life, mostly men, and their mantra is half-ass is better than no-ass, right? They don't mean do a bad job, but it's always about get version one out the door and you can mm. course correct as you go along because everything's going to get better in time, but you have to kind of start and trust that you can figure it out as you go. It's so interesting because I was like that completely with cookbooks where I felt, again, it's this weird, like I felt completely 
confident putting a cookbook out. And I was like, of course, there's other cookbooks, but I'm going to write my cookbook and it'll be great. And now I'm thinking about expanding my business into product. And every time I come up with an idea, I'm like, well, there's another protein powder out there. Or there's another this. And I don't have that same flexibility or spaciousness of thinking in the business arena. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's always room for different iterations or aimed at a different market or, you know, there's just always another way to do it. The other thing I feel like that can really hold people back, especially at those initial stages of starting something, is the idea of perfectionism. Can you speak a little bit to the role of perfectionism in imposter syndrome? It's definitely one of the, a number of ways that I think we misunderstand what it means to be competent. So for the perfectionist, they hold themselves to the standard whereby they expect a flawless performance each and every time. To to have an off day it is unacceptable. To, let's say, be a speaker and have one talk go better than another talk is unacceptable because they want to just knock it out of the park every single time. You know, they might make a give a talk and then realize they forgot to make some minor point and they will yep. beat themselves up endlessly. That's or there's me. some little <laughs> inconsequential typo in their paper and they just they can't even sleep. It's like the whole thing is ruined in their mind. First of all, it's not possible to do everything perfectly. And not only that, but not everything can be perfect or needs to be perfect. I mean, certainly if you're flying my plane or you're performing surgery on me, skew towards perfectionism. <laughs> Which is different. Having a healthy drive to excel is different than perfectionism. Because for perfectionists, we feel shame when we fall short. Mm. People who have a healthy drive to excel, like they, they want it to be perfect and they do everything they can to make sure it is. But if something goes wrong, there's a glitch, as long as they gave it their best shot, they don't feel shame. They figure, okay, what went wrong? How do I make it better next time? And they're able to kind of bounce back. Ugh, that sounds quickly. so nice. <laughs> we waste time on things where it's not warranted. Right. In the software business, they call it GEQ, good enough quality. Mm. Now, if you were preparing a presentation for a major company or a big client, you know, yeah, you're going to look for things to be perfect. But the reality is if you put on a conference, the second conference is going to be better than the first. The third time is going to be better than the second. Like everything can be improved upon. But when you're a perfectionist, you want it to be perfect the very first time. And, and it can't be because you haven't done it before. So are there concrete tools that we can use to quell those perfectionist urges? I'm a big fan of sports analogies because when you're a perfectionist, if it doesn't, if it's not quote unquote perfect, then you feel like you failed. Think about a sports team, right? Somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. The losing team is going to be crying on the bench, but they don't hang up their uniform and go home. They, they go watch the game tape to see how they could improve next time. They get more coaching. They practice and they say, we'll get them next time. So much of it is about resilience. Hmm. How do we build resilience then? I love looking to different role models. Your listeners can Google Princeton professor failure CV. The guy posted his clearly impressive tenured Princeton professor resume CV. He also posted his failure CV, the jobs he didn't get, the conferences mm. that turned down his proposal, the publications that rejected his papers, the grants he didn't get. And it, it really rocked the academic world. People were like stunned because we have this thing in our mind that success is this kind of straight line trajectory when, when it's peaks and valleys. It's what you do in the valleys that matter. Ooh, 
Yeah, it's so true. And I think it's so tricky because people just do not talk about the valleys, which is fair. Like, I don't think it's it's insidious or people trying to hide anything, but I think it's like you don't even want to dwell on the valleys. Yeah, but the valleys is where is where the, the lessons are. You know, there's a wonderful book by Mike Massimino. It's called Spaceman. He was a working class kid on Long Island who went after his lifelong dream of being a, an astronaut. And I heard about him because he was on a podcast and he talked about before his first space deployment in the shuttle, he had imposter syndrome. So I, I got to read this guy's book. So I read his book. I happen to be speaking at Columbia University the same day he had office hours. He only had office hours one day. This is actually kind of funny. So I emailed him and said, Mike, I'd like to meet you. He doesn't email me back. And I thought, well, perhaps he didn't understand. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't feel rejected. I'm like, okay, he doesn't understand. He needs to meet with me. So I sent him a copy of my book. So I figured you can't ignore something that arrives <laughs> in the mail, right? You can ignore an email, but not something that arrives in the mail. So he said, sure, he'd meet with me. Super busy guy. He, he's often on the Big Bang Theory for anybody who watches that show. He plays himself. So I read his book and... His whole book is a case study in not thinking like an imposter. When he was at MIT, he said the first year he did fine. The second year, he said it kicked his ass, almost dropped out. But he got together in a study group with other failing students, and they were able to lift their grade together. Mm. Then he failed his qualifying, his oral exams to qualify for the PhD. Again, almost dropped out. People jumped in, helped him prepare. He did more research and he tried it again. And it's all through his book, these scenarios of him dealing with adversity, failure, and then addressing it. So when I met him, I said, Mike, I don't think you had imposter syndrome. And he said, you don't? I said, no, I think you had, holy crap, I'm going into outer space and take him syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> because again, his book is the opposite of imposter syndrome. So there was two things that you talked about there that I think were really interesting. One, I love that you were like, oh, maybe he didn't get the email. Maybe I need to get in touch with him another day, I think, or another way. I think sometimes we're so quick to attribute somebody's not responding or silence on the other end is like, oh, something must be wrong with us. And I think that you were like, no, it's not about me. I should just find another contact method. That's a really powerful message for how we perceive others' reaction to us in so many parts of our lives. Yes, definitely. We take it very personally. And I, the, the solution is always going to be persistence. I used to think about that when I was working as a full-time magazine editor, is sometimes people would pitch me like 13 times and I would finally answer the email and say yes to a really great article idea on the 13th time. And it's not because anything was really different. It was just they caught me in a different time of my day and a different frame of mind. And if they hadn't kept following up in that way, they never would have caught me in that moment, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Let me give you a similar example. I Years ago, I, I had a newsletter for people who wanted to figure out how to make a living without a job and how to turn their interest into income and be their own boss. So I, I contacted, I sent all these press releases and nobody got back to me. So I sent like a, a plan, like a day planner to a big publication. And anyway, I, so, so they had something visible on their desk. So they got in touch with me and they said, well, we're not going to do an article on this, but we are doing an article on two family incomes, earners downsizing to be a one person earning family. And we're going to do a sidebar with tips. Could you write that? And I mm. said, yes, I knew nothing about it, but I just said yes, because I figured how hard can it be? <laughs> I'll, I'll use some common sense tips. I'll call some financial planners and I'll, and I wrote them some, I wrote them. I love so that. Sometimes you just have to say yes. And then go, okay, 
I have no idea how to do that, but this person does and this person does, I'll figure it out. Absolutely. Especially in the age of the internet, honestly, like that whole process has become so much easier. You just Google. Yep. Absolutely. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. When I worked as a magazine editor, I wrote more than a thousand articles about turmeric because pretty much all of the doctors that I used as sources kept recommending it or citing it as one of the supplements that they would personally take. Here's the background. Turmeric is one of the most powerful ways to fight inflammation. In a nutshell, there are two types of inflammation, acute and chronic. Acute inflammation can actually be a good thing. It's one of the ways that your body heals and repairs itself. But when that system goes haywire, we get chronic inflammation, which essentially makes your body feel like it's constantly under attack. The vast majority of doctors I work with cite chronic inflammation as one of the root causes of so many of our modern ailments, and research links inflammation with heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune conditions, cancer, arthritis, and gut issues like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I am never going to sit around and tell you that a supplement will cure everything that ails you, but if you're looking for a turmeric supplement to help get your inflammation under control, I am extremely impressed with Paleo Valleys. To increase the bioavailability of turmeric, you need to consume it with black pepper, which most people know, and fat, which many people forget about. Paleo Valley's turmeric complex has black pepper and coconut oil to maximize absorption and three other powerful anti-inflammatories, ginger, rosemary, and clove for a maximum synergistic response. It also has no fillers, binders, or preservatives and is made with all organic ingredients and just a veggie capsule. Finally, it's third-party tested, which is something I always look for in supplements as extra assurance of their quality. I've had my uncle taking this for about three months, and he's gone from having debilitating back pain due to an autoimmune condition to being almost completely pain-free. Paleovality has a number of other incredibly high-quality food-derived supplements, including a vitamin C that I adore. Vitamin C is my ultimate favorite supplement for skin health, and a NeuroEffect mushroom powder that Zach loves for increasing energy and focus. So definitely explore their website. If you'd like to check out the turmeric complex, the vitamin C, the neuro effect, or any of Paleo Valley's other amazing products, head over to paleovalley.com and use the code LizM for 15% off. That's paleovalley.com and code LizM for 15% off your order. And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Instagram. I love chatting about this stuff. Now, let's get back to the episode. And the second thing you said that I thought was really interesting was that he got together with a group of other failing students. And I know that you talk about the idea of kind of having imposter syndrome support groups. Can you talk about that a little bit? That's what I did. When I first heard about this thing called imposter syndrome, when I was a graduate student, I my my head was nodding like a bobblehead doll and, and, <laughs> and I looked around the room and everybody else was nodding their head and we decided to start a little imposter support group. I think it is incredibly important important to find, even if it's one other person, but to have somebody who's an accountability partner or somebody Mm. you can talk to. But I want to say this, you don't want to get stuck there. And I see women doing that a lot, like where they kind of spiral into this, like, yeah, but you don't understand. This is the big one. I know I'm going to, I know I did well last time, but this is the big project. I'm going to fail. It's going to be terrible. And researchers have found that adolescents, it's called co-ruminating, adolescents who dwell on negative thoughts and feelings with their friends actually experience higher levels of depression and anxiety. Oh, wow. So talk about it, but don't get stuck there. I mean, I often joke that with my friends and I, we might talk about how fat we feel. 
I never feel any thinner at the end of that conversation. Mm. <laughs> so we can really get stuck there. So make sure you're in a group where it's not just going to be a pep talk, you know, like you've got this and you can do it. You know, you really, because when you feel like an imposter, if somebody's just saying, oh, you've got nothing to worry about, you're going to be great. That's not helpful because you really have anxiety about this and it makes you feel like they don't really understand. So what would be like the ideal feedback you'd be getting from a group just to know that you're, I don't know, you're not over ruminating and you're not also getting false praise or cheer? What's what's the sweet spot there? I would want to be in a group where I could say, could somebody read this page, this thing, this proposal I read and give me some honest feedback mm. about how I can make it better? Yeah, I like that. So it's almost like shifting more into the pragmatic and somebody else who can look at your work, evaluate your work and say, perhaps you don't have the clearest perspective on your work. Right. Or I've got to have this tough conversation. Could I practice it with Mm. with you guys and and do some role playing? I mean, very practical kind of ways to help each other, not just roll in it. I love that. I love that. Okay. I'd love to talk about some of the other like sneaky ways that imposter syndrome impacts our lives. Like I thought it was so interesting that you connect it to over-preparing and procrastination, that those are basically coping mechanisms for imposter syndrome. Can you talk about that a little bit? Part of that comes from Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, who originally coined the term imposter phenomena. They talked about different coping and protecting mechanisms. In other words, imposter syndrome isn't just an interesting self-help topic, that these feelings lead to behaviors in the form of these coping mechanisms. And when we develop these mechanisms, we're trying to do the best we can. We're trying to take care of ourselves. We're trying to manage the anxiety of waiting to be found out and to avoid being found out. So one for one person, it's overworking, over-preparing, staying longer, studying harder, working harder, not because it's required, right? We all have to work hard, but out of the sense that I have to work harder to kind of cover up for my supposed ineptness. A hundred years ago, Liz, I was on a talk show in Boston, you know, kind of pre-Oprah, and it was me and a couple other people, and they had imposter syndrome. And one was a medical student. And the host said, Karen, this is ridiculous. You're a medical student. Obviously, you're intelligent. And she said, no, not really. Mm. I just work harder than everyone else. On the other end of that is, you know, not so much the overworking, over-preparing, but kind of flying under the radar, holding back, not raising your hand, not going for something more challenging, not starting or scaling your business or writing your book. The sense that if I can kind of keep my head down, nobody will notice me and it'll be safer there. So how do we stop relying on these coping mechanisms? Like, could you give us a few action steps that we could use to overcome those humps? Well, the the first step is to understand that these patterns are serving us. So it's to step back and say, what does my pattern help me get? Mm. What does my pattern help protect me from? And what does my pattern help me avoid? So your pattern might help you avoid humiliation or failure or disappointment. If you procrastinate chronically, guess what? You get time to do stuff you'd rather do. If you work insanely hard, you're probably going to be successful. So all of these things are designed to, to help us in some way. But here's the key, always at a cost. We always pay a price for the protection that we get. And so then you have to step back and say, what will happen if I never change this pattern? Mm -hmm. What opportunities and experiences might I miss out on? What is the price? So once you can identify, here's, here's what I'm getting. Here's what it's costing me. Now you can make a conscious choice. Because before it was just this 
lousy is pattern, right? But now you can say, well, gee, it's protecting me. I think I'm going to keep it, you know, this lousy pattern. Or you get to say the price is too high and I'm going to look at doing some things differently. It also strikes me when you mentioned that doctor that she might have been nervous about like being perceived by others differently. Like she might have been nervous about coming off as braggy. And I think that's another part of imposter syndrome is like we feel like if we step into our full power, if we step into our whole our full light, people will be like, oh, she's like so full of herself. She's so braggy. Yeah. And I think that's much more a fear of, of women. And, and also uh, culturally, that's an issue in, in many cultures as well of being humble and suddenly you're studying at an American school or working for an American company and you're expected to kind of brand yourself and promote yourself. And that's so in conflict with, with your culture. But I do think more specifically for women, there is that fear that people will think we're full of ourselves and, and they're not going to like us. So what do we do about that? One, how do we overcome the fear, I would say. But then two, I think sometimes it's real. Like I have girlfriends who are afraid to put their accomplishments on their dating profiles or even talk about them on their first date. They're looking for heterosexual partnerships usually, and they're worried that men will judge them for those. And they have found that to actually be true, that they are I was less successful say, sadly, dating. <laughs> sadly, they may not be wrong. Yeah. So what do we do about both the perception element and not wanting that perception, but then also the very real reality? Well, I think it's, you know, understanding that the reality is there. I, and I got to say, I don't know if I went on a, you know, going on a date. I don't care what the gender of the person was. I don't know that I find it all that interesting to have them go on about how great they are or all their accomplishments. I think there's ways that you can talk about things without sounding self-promotional. I think there's ways you can do it in a humble kind of way. Sometimes I've been in situations where I'm talking about things I've done. For example, I might say I've spoken over a hundred universities in the US, Canada, Japan, and the in the UK. But then I might add to that, I'm not telling you this to impress you, Liz. Mm. I'm telling you this because I want you to understand and your listeners to understand that this is a very international phenomenon. So you can kind of explain why you're telling folks about that. Or you could say, you know, I, I'm, I mentioned that because I worked so hard. And after all this hard work, I really feel good that I was able to accomplish X. Mm. It's interesting to even have the self-conversation about like why you would mention it. Am I trying to impress somebody else? How do I want them to view me, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's interesting to even ask yourself like why am I – listing my accomplishments because I think sometimes it could probably be for very positive reasons and sometimes it can be because you need validation or other less positive reasons. Right. It's ego kind of stuff. I feel that often on airplanes. I, I seem to sit next to people who have tell me about their entire life and everything they've ever done. I, I leave knowing so much about them and they've never asked me one question. Mm. And there's a part of me that wants to say, do you know that I have a best-selling book? Do you know that I've spoken over the world? You know, but I was like, why? What is that in me that has this need to let them know who I am? And does it really matter? And I just kind of take a deep breath and let it be their show. And I think that if you can have that conversation with yourself, you can, I don't know, it's like you can kind of work on that quiet confidence of, of feeling that self-love and self-appreciation that you don't need it to come externally in the same yeah, way. Exactly. You wrote in the book that confidence comes from taking risks, owning the wins, and learning from the losses. It was a really 
simple sentence, but it completely stopped me in my tracks because it suggested that taking risks is inherent to building confidence. Do you think that that's true? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And regardless of how it turns out, you know, it's not about taking risks and succeeding. It's taking a risk and going, well, that business flopped or, well, that wasn't the best way to go. But you still would have learned something in the process. Would you want to have your headstone say, she could have been a great writer, but she was too afraid to try. Maybe you don't make it to to Broadway, but you still get up on stage and you were in these, you know, amazing local productions or, yeah, you're not on Saturday Night Live, but you know, you got up and did some stand up and tried tried some things. And it's just it's the it's the doing it that really matters. But I think there's something about where if you don't try, you can always tell yourself like, oh, I could have made it exactly. to Broadway. I could have made it to Saturday Night Live. And the second you try, you take away that little bit of narrative that you can cling to. Yeah, absolutely. But how fulfilling is that going to be in in old age? You know, Mm. there's studies that show that the biggest, you know, regrets people have is is the things that they didn't do. It's not that the things that they did do. We have Dan Pink on an episode and he talks, I think he he said one of the biggest regrets of people was not taking risks and that almost always like with some caution, you know, but almost always you should take the risk when presented with the opportunity. And talk to the right people when you're going to take a risk. You know, we often go to friends and family who are very risk averse Mm. and they're going to tell us, you know, play it safe and that's too risky. And, you know, you don't know anything about that. Rumi said when something like when embarking on a journey, never ask for directions from someone who has never left home. Ooh, I love that. That is powerful. That's one way I would say that we can become better at taking risks is to ask the right people about the risk. Do you have any other tips for becoming better at taking risks and knowing what risks are worth taking? I'm a big fan of small steps. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but I I used to, I I had a newsletter called Changing Course, which was for people who wanted to make a living without a job and leave their job and go out on their own. It wasn't called Jump Off a Cliff newsletter. It was called Changing Course, right? It's it's small steps and you might try something and it doesn't work out. Then you kind of course correct, but now you know that that Mm. wasn't the direction you wanted to go. You know, as I was in my corporate job, I, I came out with a line of uh, greeting cards that I drew myself and I had them printed and I walked into bookstores and I, and it was very stressful to have the owner like looking through the cards and going, no, nope, I don't want to give them back to me or say, yeah, I'll order these and I'll order those. I didn't uh, ultimately stick with it because there was just parts of the business I didn't care for, but I'm so glad I did it. Like mm. I said, I was going to do it and, and I did it. It doesn't mean anything's lost now and now I have more information and I'm going to try something else. You're listening to the Healthier Together podcast. You guys always reach out and ask me the best supplements you should take or how you should be modifying your diet and exercise for a specific issue that you're trying to deal with. And while I try to give you as many tools as possible on this podcast, at the end of the day, we're all individual, unique humans with individual, unique needs, which is why I am so excited to introduce you to this week's sponsor, Wild Health. Wild Health is a new approach to healthcare called precision medicine. Basically, they analyze your DNA, blood work, lifestyle, and more to provide you with truly personalized healthcare. And because it's so personalized, you get phenomenal results. They've had outcomes like a 39% reduction in inflammation or a 15% improvement in HRV. HRV, by the way, is an incredible marker of overall health that I think we're going to be using a lot more in the future. I am planning to do a whole podcast episode on it. 
They can see how many hours of sleep that you truly need a night or how caffeine personally impacts your body. They can see your biological age, which might be vastly different than your chronological age, and actually impact that to increase your health and lifespan. I'm a person who's been nervous about testing my DNA forever just because I'm anxious about what I might learn, but this is so different than other DNA tests out there because they give you action steps to actually reduce risks of negative outcomes versus like, oh, here you have these scary genes, good luck. You can actually do something about it, which always helps my anxiety so much. Like all of the doctors on this podcast, Wild Health really focuses on the root causes behind your health instead of just treating symptoms as they spring up. And they use hard science and data to truly personalize your healthcare to your specific body and needs. Plus, they'll tailor your health plan to your lifestyle so it's actually achievable. Like if you can't fit in long meditation sessions or you hate a certain food, you can tell them that and they'll find a different solution that gets you the same results. You're also not going to be chasing some like fad diet or taking a supplement just because everyone else is. You'll be doing what's right for you. You'll receive a 50-page report covering everything from your optimal diet, exercise, and supplement routine to your risks of chronic disease and prevention strategies. You'll also get paired with a dedicated doctor and health coach who will help you understand and apply the information to make the biggest strides towards your health goals. And the amazing news is it's all done by telehealth so you can live anywhere in the U.S. and reap all of the benefits. Unfortunately, because of healthcare regulations, it is only available in the U.S. at present. Just to quickly caveat for my international listeners, I'm very sorry. If you would like to try Wild Health for yourself, go to wildhealth.com Liz and enjoy an exclusive 20% off with code Liz. That's wildhealth.com slash Liz with code Liz for 20% off. I am really excited about this one, and I truly cannot wait for you to try. Now, let's get back to the episode. What about that fear of failure? Do you have any strategies for getting to that place with failure where you're really dealing with it in a healthy way versus berating yourself or feeling like crap or feeling like you shouldn't try anything ever again? You know, this being an entrepreneur, it happens all the time. My co-founder at Imposter Serum Institute, we've been trying different things and like something didn't work out. We're like, well, now we know that doesn't work or well, we learned something there. And we just try to bounce back more quickly because what did Nelson Mandela say? He never fails. He only learns. It's great advice. It's just, it's really hard in the moment because I think there's first like there's the, I don't know if it's like excuse making, but you want to be like, well... Is because this person knows this person. Like you have all these reasons for stuff that things went wrong that have nothing to do with you. And then there's the flip side where you're like, it's all because of me. And if I were a better person or if I were smarter, I would have made this work. And I just think there's like so there's a stew of negative emotions going on there that's really hard to climb out of. Yeah, I you know, and I I don't want to suggest that it's easy to climb out of them. Carol Dweck wrote a wonderful book called Mindset, and she has a, a chapter for parents. And the, the typical dinnertime conversation with kids, school-age kids, is what did you learn in school today? To which the kids say, nothing, right? Or I don't remember, which is what we said as kids. Dweck said, wouldn't it be more interesting as have a parent, we, we said, you know, once a week, every day, once a month, let's all go around the table and talk about something that was difficult challenging or we failed at and how we dealt with it, I'll start. 
because few of us got, got those messages growing up. You know, we don't see a lot on the, on the realities of setbacks and failures. We think, especially, it, you know, with, with social media, and the internet, you know, we, we see somebody, we think they're this overnight success. Steve Martin in his biography, he, he worked like crazy, failure after failure after failure for 10 years. And then suddenly there was some, you know, he had some break and he became this big thing. And he was described as an overnight success. Mm. I think it's important to read biographies and look at the, the struggle and the realities of people who are at the top of their game and to know that it wasn't this kind of straight shot. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything that you can say to like knowing? Okay, so I'm thinking about people who are like, well, I, it's almost the flip side of imposter syndrome. I definitely should start this huge business right now. I should quit my job and move to this country and start this business. I should definitely publish a novel. This almost like outsized confidence that isn't necessarily earned in those areas. Is there a way that we can recognize in ourselves when imposter syndrome is the thing that's holding us back and when? It's actually something that perhaps we should question whether we should do or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. Because I think overconfidence can be just as detrimental as lack of confidence. There are people who haven't really done their homework or haven't you know, paid any kind of dues who have outsized expectations for how successful they'll become. It, it's quite a balancing act because I really encourage people to kind of shoot high yeah, and to go for it and to say, why not you? Right? Because so often there's the opposite happens. We have that little voice that says, who do you think you are? And I always encourage people to change the question to who do you think you are to not go for it? On the flip side, is there like a balance there though of like, how do you mitigate against overconfidence? Well, I think you'll find out <laughs> pretty pretty quick, you know, if it's not going to, if it doesn't work out. Honestly, Liz, I don't have a good solution to that. I think it depends if the person is competent versus there are people who have irrational self-confidence syndrome. You know, they really think they know far more than they really do or can do far more than they really do. I think we also have a bias. I think women have a bias against overconfident people. I, I tell a story mm. in my book. I used to work for a company that was kind of like a daytimers company that we competed with the Franklin Covey system. And we met with this guy. I was with the president of the company. We met with this guy and he was like this young hotshot. And he kept referring to himself like, I'm like Tiger Woods. He was comparing himself to Stephen Covey. You know, he's like Nicholson or I'm like Tiger Woods. I'm like Tiger Woods. And we're kind of looking at each other like we're rolling our eyes like, yeah, right, buddy. Well, 10 years later, the guy writes this book. He's this big thing. And who, who writes a blurb on the back of his book but Stephen Covey, right? <laughs> but we were like, what a jerk. But he believed in himself and he and it kept works. going. So yeah. I don't have a good answer for how you know when you really shouldn't be that confident. I think things will happen along the way that will give you information you need to accelerate or put the brakes on or, ooh, maybe I do need more practice or experience here. I mean, it almost sounds like it's better just to err on the side of being overconfident. Like it sounds like why not? And then if you get enough pushback on that, maybe readjust. But I, I had somebody in my life that was similar to that too, where he kind of like annoyed everybody by having so much like bluster and talking himself up, but he's immensely successful now. So it obviously worked for him. Yeah. 
it worked for him. <laughs> I also think there's like a fine line between acknowledging your own skills and acknowledging privilege. You can say, oh, it's just good timing or it was just luck. And that can be ways that you're manifesting imposter syndrome. But sometimes it is timing or luck or privilege, whether that's financial or the color of your skin or anything else like that. So how do you have any advice for navigating walking that line? Oh, absolutely. The reality is things like luck, timing, connections, personality, they play a legitimate role. They're not an excuse for a success. Maybe you got an amazing break. Maybe you did grow up in an affluent community where maybe you had these amazing connections. Maybe you were in the right place at the right time. Maybe you have a great personality, which is not an excuse for success. It's a valid skill set. It's what you do with these things that count. Because you can look at a, a yearbook in any affluent community and see kids who had every opportunity in the world and still couldn't get out of their own way. And then you could also, you know, find folks who did not have a lot of breaks or connections. They shouldn't have been, quote unquote, successful. And yet they put in the effort and, and the persistence and, and kept going. And when they did get a break, they capitalized on it. It's what you do with these things that really matter. It can be frustrating, though, sometimes when you feel like you're on the wrong side of privilege and it's so much easier for people who are on the right side of it. You know oh, what I mean? Especially if they don't see that. If they think, you know, what what is the expression? I forget who originally said it, but it's like you you were born on third base and you act like you hit a triple. Yeah. Yeah. It's is I don't know, this this isn't like imposter syndrome, me, but do you have any advice for dealing with that the negative feelings involved in recognizing that inequality? Well, I think we all in different facets have more or less privilege. So I think it's about recognizing that there's certain ways that th things are certainly easier for me because I'm white, more challenging in other ways, you know, because I'm a woman, uh, easier for me because I am i don't have a, a disability. I was going to say middle class, but I, I grew up working class. I thought I was middle class. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't understand I was really working class for a long time. So I think it's it's recognizing that we all have those privileges and then seeing what, what can, how can I use the privilege that I do have mm. to help make a difference in someone else's life who may not have the same privileges. I love that. I also do think that last bit is so important. I always feel better. It's, it sounds so trite and so dumb, but when you're actually trying to help somebody outside of yourself, whether it's like a mentorship, like literally anything that takes you outside of yourself, even if it's just like a phone call with somebody to talk about something going on in their life, it feels so much better than like sitting there and lusting over that which you don't have and you will never have because of the circumstances of your life. Oh, I couldn't agree more. We, you get this kind of high from helping yeah. and being of service. Yeah, you really do. Aren't there studies that show that it makes us feel better than riches and like all these things that we oh, think absolutely. will make us yes, happy? Yes, there's absolutely research on that. Yes. Yeah, that's fascinating. I would love to touch on some of your list of rights because I found those so powerful. I was curious if you have any favorites from that. Yeah, this is a list of rights that I put in my book that I just were one of the many things that got handed around when I was in graduate school that none of us put our name on and just put out into the universe. So I have no idea who actually wrote it. But it was a list of 25 rights that we're all perfectly entitled to, but we sometimes act as if we're not. So it's the right to have an off day, the right to not understand, the right to make a mistake, the right to fail and get up and, and try again, the right to get our questions answered, even if the other person is busy, 
when I would do workshops, I'd give people this list and I'd say, just try to avoid intellectualizing, just check off any of these rights you find a hard time granting yourself. And women would just go check, 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 check. But you know, when you think about it, if you knew you had the right to have an off day, to not be perfect, to struggle to master something, to ask for help, to not know everything, there will be nothing to feel like an imposter about. Mm. It's so powerful. And the full list is in your book, but literally every single one, I was just like, it's so crazy to me how quickly we forget that we have these rights. Yeah. And that's part of the, you know, the reframing. Again, when you're having, it's not about never thinking these things. It's about hitting the pause button and having kind of the tools and the information insight to be able to talk yourself down faster. A lot of it comes from the outside too. Like I think one of them was like, the right to not be patronized. And it's nice to have that distance in the moment when somebody might be treating you as less than in some way or not valuing your contribution or your work or something like that to step back and say, wait, no, I have the right to be treated with dignity. I have the right to be treated with respect. I have the right not to be patronized to get that distance and acknowledge what you deserve in those moments. Absolutely. Not to be patronized, you know, harassed, discriminated against. Well, I would also like to point out that the rights are not things that you earn. They're just things that you have. I think sometimes we feel like we have to achieve a certain level of success or value in other people's eyes to have these rights, but these are just rights that you have no matter what. Absolutely. And I think that's hugely important. All right. Can you just leave us with one homework assignment, something really actionable that we can all start doing today to conquer imposter syndrome in our own lives? Next time you have what I consider a normal imposter moment, again, it's about kind of stopping, pausing, but zooming out to get the bigger picture. I think imposter syndrome has become over-psychologized. I think we need to do more contextualizing Mm. and less personalizing. What do you mean by that? Well, to go, well, of course I feel this way. I'm in a creative field. Or of course I feel this way. I'm a first-generation student and I'm at Yale University now. Or of course I feel this way. I'm just starting a business. Or of course I feel this way, whether it's based on the field that you're in or the organizational culture. I did some a podcast for the British Medical Journal and there was a medical student and a new physician on, and they were lamenting the lack of positive feedback that they get in medical school. In the UK, they take an exam at the end of their studies. The highest they can get is no concern. That's the best you can do is we have no concern about you, Liz. (laughs) So I was saying, you know, that sucks. But here's the reality. Whether you knew it or not, that's the culture you signed up for. That Mm. is medical culture. I want them to know that so that when these things happen, they realize it's not about them. They're in a culture where there's a lot of shaming, there's not a lot of positive feedback, you're only getting pointed out the things you did wrong. If you know that, you can put it into that context and say, it's not about me, this is what this is the environment. Which is also empowering because in a lot of situations, not all, but in a lot of them, you chose that environment. You exactly. made that choice. And I think that's important. I interviewed somebody on the podcast who said that the original researchers who coined the idea of imposter syndrome, after they talked about it, they like took it back because they realized that literally everybody had it. So it wasn't actually a syndrome. It was just part of life. Is that is that true? Or was that misquoted to me? No, I, I don't think that's the case. I know Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. I know that they take offense as do a lot of people in academia and psychologists at it being called imposter syndrome. The, the original term is imposter phenomenon. Mm. Because it, in their world, the syndrome is like a psychological diagnosis of a condition. 
I use syndrome in like the, the second description in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, which is kind of a, you know, a set of behaviors and patterns that lead us to a certain place. But, but no, I don't think that they didn't change their mind. <laughs> yeah. It, it's an interesting idea though, that it's like so widely common that it's, it's just, it's almost like we don't need to pathologize it in that way. Cause it's just universal, you know? This is what I will say is the fact that let's just take the 70% of us feel this way. That does mean we are in the majority, which, you know, I have to break it to people. You're not special, right? A lot of people feel this way, but also it begs the question, what's up with the other 30? Mm, what is up with the other 30? Well, my theory is some part of the other 30 has a whole different issue. The irrational self-confidence syndrome, like the smartest guy in the room, the narcissist. We don't want to be them. We want to be like that. The, the minority within the majority who are genuinely humble, but have never felt like an imposter. And these are people I refer to as humble realists. Mm. And the more we can move towards thinking like a humble realist, which means looking at having a realistic understanding of competence and having a healthy response to failure, mistakes, criticism, and fear. To me, that's how you can unlearn imposter syndrome is having something else to replace it with. That makes sense. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days, where people can find you if they want to explore more of your work? Yeah, I mean, it's very easy. It's impostersyndrome.com. I co-founded Imposter Syndrome Institute, and we're focusing on licensing my intellectual property, whether it's training people who are coaches, you know, how to work with folks who experience imposter syndrome. We train some people really all over the world to deliver a talk I give called Rethinking Imposter Syndrome. But what we're really moving, Liz, is to be able to, on an enterprise level, is to work with large organizations. You know, I speak to companies like Google and Pfizer and to help them kind of become an imposter-free organizational culture and make some real changes on the organizational level. I love that because that goes back to the things we were talking about, which is like you can do so much work internally, but at a certain point, systems also need to change. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and sharing all of your wisdom. Thank you. I love being here. I hope you loved this episode with Dr. Young. If you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss out on any future episodes. We have amazing ones coming up, including an episode about how to get over heartbreak and a leading researcher sharing how to change your epigenetics to change your health destiny. Ooh, that is a good one. I am so excited to share. If you love this episode, I would so appreciate you sharing a link on your social media or with someone in your real life who you think would benefit. Imposter syndrome is so insidious, as we talked about in this episode. There are so many people who are suffering from it and not even realizing that it's the thing behind their procrastination or over-preparation or why they're not starting that business or going after that dream. I would love to help this research reach more people, and it's also the single best way that you can support this podcast. Seriously, all of the massive growth that we have experienced this year has been thanks to all of you guys texting friends and family members and putting it on your company Slack channel. And I am so grateful for and appreciative of all of it. Also, if you did love the episode, I would so appreciate a quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am so close to my goal of 2,000 reviews. And if literally only a teeny tiny fraction of the people listening took a quick moment of their time to write one, we would be literally thousands over that number. I know it's annoying when podcasters ask all the time to do this, but they really do help other people find the podcast, which is why we're asking all of the time. I also read all of them and I am so grateful for every single one. They just 
make me feel really wonderful. So thank you to everybody who has written one. And if you can find it in your heart to do one, I would massively appreciate it. Okay. I love you. And I will see you next week on the next episode of the Healthier Together podcast. I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years, and I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin, and I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me. He couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a 5 out of 5 star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody, and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to puri.com slash L-I-Z M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody.